Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and this week it's a relaxed fit episode and that basically means that I'm taking a break from reviewing Tom Seedley's The Lies of Bees to just sort of chat about what I've been up to here on the homestead, general kind of news that's been going on with me, things that have caught my interest and then I'm also going to go into a little bit of detail about setting up what I call a chicken hospital for when we find a sick hen in our flock. So I'll start with some homestead news and part of why I have decided to take a break from reviewing the lives of bees is I didn't do the homework (laughs) and the reason why is um, in part because we finally had good weather and so there were days where I literally spent every waking moment that I could when I wasn't doing my animal chores out in the garden preparing beds and generally just like mowing the lawn and being busy and thinking about what needs to be done and and trying to get as much work done as I could in um, the good weather hours that I had. And then conversely, I also lost a lot of motivation because I have had a very high mortality rate for the baby pink tongue skinks this year. I also had a high mortality rate last year and so I'm feeling very discouraged. Um, I've gone over husbandry and from what I feed them to how I keep them to temperatures to seasonal changes to everything I can think of and everything is is exactly how it should be. So the only thing that I can assume is that some of it is a first time litter issue. So my female that I bred last year was a first timer and one of the females this year was a first timer. So that could be a contributing factor. And then as always, there's the issue of genetics. So I have done my best to track the genetic lineage of the skinks that I have, but a lot of people haven't done the same thing. So it's been a trial to actually get as much information as possible as I can about the genetics that I have. And like with many reptiles in the US, um, particularly ones that are from countries like Australia that has closed borders, A lot of people just don't track and they don't seem to care about issues like inbreeding. And as a result, my concern is that the gene pool here in the US is smaller than it could be. And so moving forward, what I've decided to do is the two females that bred this year will not be breeding next year. So they're going to have a full year and a bit break from any kind of production. I do have a completely unrelated pair from all my other lines that might be ready to breed. Their breeding season is over winter. It's possible that they'll be ready, but based on their growth pattern right now, I'm not convinced. So I might just take a full year off from breeding. And I think it's for the best because the girls need a break and I need a break because as much as this is part and parcel of reproducing you know having other animals making them breed it it hurts it hurts a lot and I have had days um, where I wake up and every morning I found a, a new dead baby and it's been really difficult and 
I think I just need a little bit of a break from it. And uh, it has definitely affected my mood and my motivation. And, and so that's why this week is um, my relaxed fit. So I can just kind of talk about things that have been of interest to me. Now, I will say on the plus side, you know, where there's death, there's also life. And um, my husband has been working on a jungle carpet python breeding project for, I don't know, four years now. He carefully chose the genetic lineages. He chose for color and pattern and like crispness of pattern. And then also for demeanor, like how docile the snakes are, how easy they are to tame. Now, last year, you might recall that we did have eggs, but sadly, none of them hatched. And we put that down to first time clutches, um, a possible lack of heat while the females were pregnant. So we wanted to increase overnight heat. And then also we had an incubator failure. So it was a brand new incubator. It had great reviews and it failed. But what we did is we examined the eggs and we did find some snake babies in there. So we know that they were able to produce, but for you know, these reasons I just mentioned, none hatched. So we did things differently this year. We put overnight heat in for the carpet python females while they were gravid. And just as a reminder, gravid is the term we use for reptiles that lay eggs. And it basically just means when they were pregnant, when they were full of eggs. And so we put overnight heat on, uh, we monitored the heat a little bit more closely as well while we had the overnight heat. And also my husband made his own incubator uh, out of a, um, like a, a beer cooler. He he used that as the body. And then he bought like special heat tape and like a really, really good um, thermometer and humidity system. And he had it all set up and we had it all tested and ready to go. So we bred two females. Uh, the females are called Carcosa and Tindalos, and they had both been bred to the same male. We only have one breeding male right now. His name is Sarnath. And even though both looked like they were gravid, Carcosa ended up reabsorbing her eggs, whereas Tindalos did lay eggs. And we had an absolutely beautiful clutch of 21 snake eggs. Now, over the first couple of weeks, we lost some of those eggs and we ended up at... Um, what we thought was 18 eggs, but we actually found out was 17. And of those 17, we had um, babies. So they all started hatching um, and we call it pipping. And basically um, snakes, when they're in the egg, they grow this tiny little egg tooth on the end of their nose. And that's what they use to make a slit in the egg. Now, after you see that slit in the egg, Oh, and I should probably explain as well, snake eggs are, they're not like, they're not calcified like a bird egg. They're soft and kind of leathery. So they do need calcium, but they're not hard to the touch. They are much softer and more delicate. And um, so they use this egg tooth to make a slit in the egg. And once you see that slit, it can be up to 48 hours before the snakes even emerge. Because what they do is they sit in there and they reabsorb all their yolk. So their yolk is attached to basically, think of it like a belly button, uh, like we see in placental mammals. But it's a little different. It's completely open and the yolk, it just rests against it. And they completely absorb the yolk into their body and then their tummy reseals. And then once they've kind of recovered from eating and making that like slip, because it's very hard being born or hatching, they um, come out. 
So over a period of 48 hours after we saw the slits appearing, we got 17 healthy, beautiful babies. And um, I have some pictures on my website, which I will put in the episode description. And uh, I know not everyone's into reptiles, but we're really proud of um, our success this year. The babies are beautiful. They're doing so well. and It's just wonderful. So we are very excited by this and um, we might breed again next year. Not the, not uh, Tindalos and Carcosa we have another female who will be ready next season and we might breed her we're, we're trying to decide it really depends on what her weight is how she's doing things like that so in other positive news I celebrated my female whippet second gotcha day and um we use the term gotcha day to refer to the day that we got her whether we adopted or um, in her case, I, w- I never really know what to say about the whippets because they came from breeders, but I didn't pay breeding prices, if that makes sense. Like I didn't contact them for a puppy. I was looking for adult whippets that needed new homes. And between me and the breeders, we always worked out what I considered to be a reasonable adoption fee to um, basically just show that, um, to demonstrate to them that I was, uh, you know, a good home and, and, and financially capable and things like that. Anyway, so it's been two years since we've had Luna and she's my female Whippet and um, she is an incredible little snuggle bug. And if you follow my private Instagram, which is at Britty Kitty over, um, then you have seen all the pictures I post of my dogs and there's a lot of pictures of Luna just sprawled on top of me or snuggled up close or giving me kisses or being in bed with me because she just loves to be with me and we have bonded so closely and what amazes me about Luna is you know I've had um, different dogs before and I've fostered dogs and usually you bring a new dog home and there's that period where they are nervous or even scared because they're in this new environment they don't know you they don't know your other animals they're trying to figure things out and it's completely normal for even a confident dog to become timid and uncertain in a new home. Well Luna she was actually um she was the breeder bred her from one of her own dogs so the breeder has raised Luna from the minute she came into the world through Luna having her own litter and then until Luna came home with me so she's never been in another home before ever and I don't think they really went out a huge amount either because she's quite nervous away from the home so I'm expecting to bring this whip at home and that she's going to be scared and she's going to be timid and it's going to take her, you know, maybe a good couple of weeks, maybe even months to settle in. Instead, Luna walks into our main living room, which is connected to the garage. And she basically just looked around. She greeted my dogs. She did her business outside. She got right on the sofa and she just settled in with this expression like, yeah, this is it. This is this is my new home and I am totally fine with it. And it it blew my mind. I've never had a dog adjust like that. And I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. But she's been like that since day one. She just came here. She knew it was her new home. She instantly bonded to me. And she's just my little shadow ever since. I've never been alone since I adopted her. Um, I've never been in want of snuggles 
since we brought her home. And it's just wonderful. She's so happy to see me whenever I come back. Even if I've been at the beehives for an hour, I'll come back and she's just thrilled. And at the end of a long day, particularly if I've been away somewhere, all I want is to sit down and, and be with her. And that's all she wants. And she'll just climb on me and give this big sigh. Like she's so happy. Like she's been waiting all day to crawl into mama's arms. So I'm very, very fortunate to have the babies that I do. I love Luna like crazy. Uh, please check out my blog for pictures of my sweet little snuggle buns. Um, so I'm just thrilled. I'm so happy that she's here. And I wanted to share that nice, happy news. So as I mentioned in my little intro, we have had some good weather. We've actually had some really hot weather as well. And by really hot, I mean, I live in, no in Northeast Ohio. So I'm talking like in the 80s, real feel of like low 90s. And so this basically means that I was able to go out and start gardening, which is great. And so some of the things that I decided to do was I was um, rummaging through the wood piles and I was using fallen branches and pieces of downed trees to use as bed borders. I also have this big compost and leaf pile at the back of the properties by the chicken coop that I've been turning uh, one to two times a year. And as a result, it's a source of incredibly nutrient rich topsoil. So I don't have to go out and buy bags of it. I can just take it from the back of my property. Now, obviously the downside is there are weeds and things in there, but it's worth the little extra work to save that money honestly and also the time of having to go out or placing an order and then obviously topsoil comes in plastic and I'm trying to reduce my plastic usage so that's been really great. I've also finally been able to plant seeds. Um, a lot of what I was waiting to plant needs a certain warmer soil temperature. So right now what I have planted is two different types of sunflower seeds. I bought mammoth, which are those absolutely ginormous ones, and autumn beauty, which is a multi-headed, sort of a, it comes in as a darker, kind of a russety color. And next up, I will be planting corn for my three sisters garden, which as a reminder is corn, beans, and squash. And you plant in that order as well. So corn needs to be in for a couple of weeks before you put in the beans. And then again, you let those grow for a couple of weeks and then you put down the squash. And I'm just waiting on the corn. The temperatures are perfect. It's just that I don't have enough deer netting to protect that garden. And I just have this image of the deer coming in and eating everything. Uh, I know that they do come on that part of the property. So I want to protect my delicate little plants. Uh, I also had a big project this year. I've talked about it before. There've been pictures on my blog and on Instagram where I was digging a drainage ditch to help with our flooding issues. And something I decided to do this week, kind of on a whim, was I noticed that because of the way that the ditch was dug, um, there's an area right along it, like running along the sides of the ditch where I can't mow. Uh, it's just too uneven with the soil. Um, it's too awkward that the lawnmower can't really get a purchase. It's it's not worth it. So what I did is I evened out those kind of uh, edges and then I added topsoil and then I put down two types of borage, white and blue flowered borage, and then a mix of different wildflower seeds. So my idea is that if I can't mow that area, instead of just letting the grass go wild and the dandelions, although I do like dandelions, but instead if I put wildflowers and borage there, it's not only going to look beautiful and colourful, but it's also a benefit to local pollinators. 
So fingers crossed, I only got that done this week. I still need to do the same for the drainage ditch that's actually within the fence line. I focused on what was out of the fence line, but I'm really hoping that it works out because I think it's going to look great and I'm kind of optimistic about it attracting more pollinators to my property. Uh, Speaking of mowing, uh, that has begun in earnest here. So my neighbours are basically out all the time mowing their lawns and I've had my little red mower, push mower out and done the best that I can. Uh, It's always tricky for me in the spring because not only is mowing such a large property with a push mower so such a time suck, but um, because our property floods, there are areas where I can't mow. Um, The mower just sinks down into the ground or the grass is just too wet and I just have to wait. It, it's just one of those things. Um, and those are areas that I'm looking at uh, mitigating somehow. I know there are um, wildflowers and native flowers that grow really well in especially wet and damp areas. And that's something that I'm going to look into a little bit more and maybe start sowing those seeds, possibly in the fall, uh, for hopefully blooming in the next spring. And I also try and time my mowing so that there's a majority of flowering dandelions as these are one of the earliest nectar and pollen sources for pollinators and our honeybees. Once all those beautiful yellow heads have fallen and or turned into the bushy seed heads, that's usually when I'll mow. not only because I'm not so worried then about removing sources of food for my bees, but also because then the seeds all fly off and then they'll reseed and I'll have more dandelions, which for most people is a downside, but for me is an upside because aside from feeding our bees, I also harvest dandelion greens and I feed my chickens with them and I feed my tortoise with them and my tortoise loves dandelion weeds he actually loves all kinds of edible uh, weeds and he prefers it over you know fancy I could get the fanciest hydroponic grown gourmet kale and he'll eat it but what he really wants is weeds but what I did notice this spring and I've noticed it previously but it really stood out to me this year was that um, once I mow the bumblebees will come out So I looked a little closely and I realized what was happening is that there are weeds that stay very close to the ground, like a ground cover, and they have their little blossoms. And when you mow, you expose them more readily. And so the bumblebees are coming out to harvest the pollen and nectar. And what I have a lot of is what my neighbors have called Creeping Charlie, which I believe is a kind of ground ivy. It has very delicate little purple flowers and the bumblebees go mad for it. So that always makes me feel a little better if I'm kind of chopping off heads of dandelions that I'm also exposing a different food source for a different group of pollinators. And while I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a podcast episode I'd listened to last year. It was from the Poly Nation podcast, which I've mentioned before. It's run by the Oregon State University Extension Service. It's very, very good. I strongly recommend that if you have any interest in bees or pollinators or gardening, that you give it a listen. And this episode is episode 52 entitled OSU Research Retinue, Mowing or Mowing Less, What Helps the Bees More? 
And I'll post a link in the episode summary and then also um, on my blog. And from episode 52's little blurb, uh, it says, I'm going to quote directly, the OSU research retinue reviews a research study that garnered a fair amount of press this month at time of publication on the connection between lawn mowing frequency and bee abundance and diversity. The study led by Susanna Lerman from USDA Forest Service Northern Research Station compared the bees visiting lawns mowed weekly every two or three weeks. The two year study was published in the May issue of the journal Biological Conservation. So it's a short episode. I definitely recommend checking it out. And basically what the study is about is it looked at mowing frequency of what every one, every one week, every week, every two weeks and every three weeks. And then what they did is they noted both the abundance of bee species, which means how many and the diversity of bee species. So basically what kinds of bees and the basic results of this seem to indicate that mowing every two weeks is optimal in terms of bee abundance. Although having said that, bee diversity is lower, possibly because of the few generalist species that tend to dominate urban landscapes. So basically honeybees, bumblebees, and so on. So if you're worried about mowing your lawn and how that's affecting your local pollinators, if that's something that you think about, then the guideline is mow every two weeks and that's really best for the bees in your area. And I know that some of you can't do that. I know that some people live in areas that have lawn height restrictions or maybe you have like the most obnoxious neighbours who just won't leave you alone unless it's like scalped every week. That's totally fine. But for those of us who can set our own schedules, it looks like mowing every two weeks is optimal. So maybe give that some kind of consideration. Another podcast that really stood out to me since I last spoke to you all is the Beekeeping Today podcast. I think I've mentioned it before. It's one of those podcasts that I've actually been following for a long time, but I don't listen to it as regularly as some of my others. But I like to come back to it every now and then, see what kind of episodes they've had and kind of pick and choose what grabs my attention. So there was a recent episode. It's from season two, episode 29. And the episode was entitled Regional Beekeeper Perspectives, East, Midwest and Mountain States. And basically the hosts, one of which is Kim Flottam, for those of us who are local to Ohio, you probably recognise the name. Um, He is a very influential beekeeper for this area and he also is the author of one of the books that I recommend uh, a lot, Backyard Beekeeping. So he and his host, Jeff, his co-host Jeff spoke to three beekeepers from the mentioned region. So one from the east, one from the Midwest and one from a mountain state. And they basically just were asking things like how their spring looks, what's different between the regions, what are they seeing in their hives as time passes, do they have differing management techniques because of the weather. And again, I will post a link to where you can find more information about this episode and then also listen to it and download it in the episode summary and on my website. And it really stood out to me because it was a very, very good episode. I really enjoyed it. But there was a section when they were addressing Varroa mite management that was, it just made me happy. So 
One of the guests, Mark Smith, is a keeper in North Carolina, and he has been working on producing mite-resistant lines in his apiary, which allows him to now be completely chemical-free. And one of the things that made me happy was there was a brief discussion about treatment-free versus chemical-free. So for a while, he was saying he was treatment-free. And then some people would say, well, what do you do about mites? And when he told them that he did things like brood breaks, breeding for resistance, um, splits and things like that, they would say, well, isn't that a kind of treatment? So what he puts on his labels for honey now is chemical free, not treatment free. And I thought that was an interesting um, clarification. But here's a few things that really stood out to me from what he shared about what he's doing in his apiary. So some of the things that he mentions that he does that he believes has really helped him breed mite resistant bees is firstly, he produces his own queens. So he stated that he bought a queen, I think a couple of years ago, and he's been doing this for 10 years. So he bought a bee, uh, a queen bee a couple of years ago, but that was the last queen that he's ever purchased. Otherwise, he produces his own queens and he chooses them from colonies that he finds to be strong they come through winter strong they are showing some mite resistant traits and he likes them for other things like honey production and docility and so on he also practices yearly brood breaks which mimics the swarming behavior that we see in wild bees and that was a big part of what he looked to when he started thinking about how he could remove chemicals from his treatment plan. So he basically started to look at wild bees and he tried to uh, deal with his hives in a way that he felt was as close to what a wild bee colony would do um, as possible. And keep in mind, he started this, like many other beekeepers who have tried things like this, before Thomas Seeley's book came out, which deals with all these issues. So he basically just was doing trial and error in his own experiences, which I find really inspirational. Another thing that stood out to me was that um, when he was talking about you know, breeding for mite resistance, one of the beekeepers on the program from Ohio asked him well how close are you to other beekeepers because if you're breeding for mite resistance you might end up producing what we call mite bombs which basically a colony that reaches a level of mite infestation that is completely unsustainable it's going to kill the colony and then some of the bees are going to leave and they're going to take with them these really high numbers of mites that then go to other colonies and basically cause issues there but conversely if you are close to other beekeepers, you could be on the receiving end of mite bombs. So this was a really pertinent question. And what I loved was that uh, Mark lives in an area where he's 1414 miles away from the nearest beekeeper. And what this means is that he can responsibly work on this project without endangering other keepers' bees. And that is so huge to me that another keeper would identify this to ask the question and that he is aware of his responsibility to other keepers. I absolutely loved this. This was a great question and a great answer. 
And he does say, he's very upfront with the fact that when he first started this project, he had 70% losses of colonies. So trying to go chemical free, it's not for the faint of heart. And if you rely on let's say, bee production, like creating nucleus colonies or breeding your own queens, or you rely on honey sales for financial security, this is a big endeavor to take. And it would definitely be something where I think you would need to consider the financial losses up front and work out whether it's something you can do. And even today, Mark still is looking to wild honeybees for guidance on management. He's always learning like we all are. It's part of what I love about beekeeping is it's this kind of lifelong learning. So I was so impressed by um, what he shared and what was asked of him. And I thought as well, what was interesting is the beekeeper from Northeast Ohio, apparently he lives about 50 miles from Kent, which isn't super far from me. His name is Tracy Alicon, I think that's how it's pronounced and he's the one who asked the question about you know Mark how far away do you live from other beekeepers and he was thinking about it because he lives quite close to other beekeepers so he needs to think about colony drift and how that can affect migration of mites but he also mentioned that he lives relatively close to the interstate where trucks that are filled with hundreds and hundreds of hives on the way to pollination contracts pass by and so there's always some kind of colony drift from these roaming hives and apparently it's also pretty common a couple of times a year that um, he or some other beekeeper will be called because a truck pulled off for a rest break somewhere, like a you know a truck stop or a rest area, and some of the bees decided that was a really good chance to get off those hives and like swarm, and he, they get called because there are just swarms hanging out at this rest area and people are nervous. So that's another consideration about uh, disease transmission due to colony drift. And the final um, or third guest, Ed Colby, he lives in Colorado. So he was sharing information about living in a more mountainous area. And he apparently is surrounded by commercial beekeepers. So there's definitely an issue of uh, varroa mite transmission and that affects how he needs to manage his colony. Oh, and I almost forgot, Mark Smith, the keeper who doesn't use chemical treatment, so he's not using any miticides, Guess what he does do? He might tests. He vigorously and carefully and consistently checks for mites. And I know I've talked about this before and it's a really big sticking point for me. If you are not using treatment, that is not an excuse to stop monitoring your mite levels. How do you know how your hive is producing, how your hive is doing, whether it is becoming mite resistant if you don't know what your varroa mite levels are. And Mark recognizes this and he does the testing. I believe he said he uses the alcohol wash method, which is my preferred testing as well. So that was really great. I was so excited, um, you know, listening to these keepers who've been doing this for so much longer than me and their questions are so on point and they're so considerate of other keepers and they're so willing to learn and discuss the differences and how they manage and accept the differences in how they manage. It's just wonderful. Please check out this episode. 
They also talk about things like how long spring takes to happen where they live, how this affects management. It was very interesting. Um, I I really enjoyed it. Um, In particular, I'm really going to start looking to see if Mark has um, a website or some kind of social media to share what he's doing. And if I'm ever going to be in North Carolina, I would perhaps cheekily give him a call and see if he would let me visit because I would really love to see what he's doing and how he plans to progress in his journey of being chemical free. So speaking of hives, I do have some hive news. Um, I was able to get out to my girls and overall things going pretty well, but it's not, um, I did have a little bit of a an oopsie, little oopsie daisy, um, which I will share. So basically we had this warm weather come, come through and like we often see in Ohio, the warm weather hits and then we get a huge amount of rain and sometimes thunderstorms. And um, on, I think it was Monday, May 18th, we had a very warm day. It was in the 70s, but it was quite humid and we had rain on and off all day. Now I'd prepared some sugar syrup Uh, Because the night temperatures were finally, after what feels like forever, warm enough to offer a liquid feed instead of solid. And just as I'd prepared all the feeders and I got the syrup in some kind of transport to take out there, it started drizzling, which I don't know if that's a term that we use here in the US. Drizzling is just like a very light, almost like a misting rain. And I thought, well, it's warm and it's not very much rain. I think this will be fine. So I just put on my veil and I went out completely bare armed and kind of unsuitable clothing. I mean, I had closed toed shoes, but I was just not thinking about protecting my body. And I decided I'd start with Queen Marcus Hyde. And immediately they reminded me why I named her after a goddess of war, because they were not happy. And I got swarmed (laughs) so they basically the foragers were home because of all this rain and even though it was a light drizzle right then possibly the foragers had come in when it was raining heavier earlier and they hadn't gone back out now the foragers they're older bees they're more likely to act as guard bees they're more likely to like get you when you're at the hive and they were really unhappy with me and so they start pinging off my veil and bouncing off my arms and um they swarm, a number of them just kind of went all over my bare arms. And one of the girls, um, I was wearing gloves, but she was very determined and she wiggled her way in and she, um, I got her out of my glove without being stung, but then she just walked further up my arm and she tagged me. And I don't even know if it didn't hook in, but, or if it did and she did die, but I thought it was the same girl managed to sting me and still survive. I don't, that's not supposed to be possible so maybe it was another forager but basically I get stung I'm still like ah that hurts so much and then (laughs) this girl is right up by my veil trying to get through it and sting me by the ear and I just thought oh this is not worth it so I I closed things up and I came in and I I put my suit on and I got my smoker lit and I went back out to finish what I was doing and you know I don't heavily smoke any of my um any of my hives but I had to give them quite a fair amount for them to calm down I got the sugar syrup on closed them all up and afterwards it did make me laugh because Queen Marker is my only surviving queen from the two nucleus colonies that I bought last year when I started beekeeping 
And I called her Queen Marker because if you remember my story, when I went to get those nukes, I got stung on the forehead by her colony and they were really mad. And when I got them home, they were so mad that they would chase me like 20, 25 foot. And it didn't last long. That's actually one of my most docile colonies now. But it did make me realize that here's a trend, right? I picked them up in the spring and they, the foragers, when they were home, were really testy and they were not happy with interference. And now here we are again. It's spring. It's rainy. They are mad. They are not putting up with my shit and they want me to respect them. So I made a note in my journal about exactly what had happened. And I basically just put a little extra note saying, you know, be mindful in spring and during rain with this colony. Now, the downside and what I've learned, and I've talked a little bit before about being stung on the forearms. Apparently, I am a little weird so a lot of people talk about like the danger zones which is usually sort of your face your eyes lips things like that to get stung on because that's usually where you're going to have some of the worst symptoms and also if you are going to have an allergic reaction um, it will probably be from I mean I'm not talking about if you're just generally allergic to honeybees but if you're going to have quite an extreme physical reaction it's often in this danger zone but when I got stung on the forehead it was barely anything. If I get stung on my forearms, I swell up really badly. It's quite intensely painful on the sting site, but only for a couple of hours. But then over the next 24 to 48 hours, my entire forearm just blows up. And when it does, because of all the inflammation, it triggers my carpal tunnel. And then I get very intense pain in my wrist. And then I get more joint pain in my fingers and eventually it can actually spread up into my elbow and then into my shoulder. And then that makes me apparently hunch weirdly overnight when the pain was most severe. And so I woke up with like this massively knotted shoulder and really intense pain. And it was just super uncomfortable for a number of days. And I was quite cranky because when my carpal tunnel flares up I lose grip strength so I was dropping things left and right it was hard to work in the garden it was just frustrating but this is all part of beekeeping I do make notes about this as well I think it's important to track how you react to things Um, it gives you an idea of what to expect in the future but it's not all madness and bee stings and getting chased from my hives so on Thursday May 21st it was another warm day and it was humid but there was no rain So I decided this would be a good time to go out. And in hive number one, which is uh, Queen Caredwin, that's my uh, fifth generation Ohio queen, I found eggs and brood, but I didn't find the queen. Now, it was very busy in there. And the fact that I saw eggs means that the queen was there or had been there three days ago. And since there were no sign of supersedure cells, So there was no sign that they were trying to replace the queen. I knew she was in there. I just missed her somehow. The brood pattern was much improved since the last time I checked. There was brood in the bottom and the middle box and one to two frames of brood in the top box. They have started drawing wax in greater quantities. It's still a little slower than I'd like. And there's a lot of burr comb going on in this hive. Um, So I had to cut away quite a lot of that and just double check spacing and make sure things were how they should be. I also found a couple of queen cups, but I broke those down um, after I confirmed that there were lots of eggs. 
I put on this hive like a gravity syrup feeder which goes on the inner cover and then I put an empty box on top and then I put the outer cover or the hive lid on. Um, I don't like feeders that go on the front of hives or that are exposed to the air because I'm concerned about robbing and um, I'm concerned about attracting wasps and things like that. This hive is interesting because when they started waking up um, after winter, they were using the top entrance at the back of the hive. And this is normal, you know, it has a hive wrap on. It's not uncommon to see bees using the top of a hive over winter um, in terms of coming out for cleansing flights. But they seem to prefer the rear entrance now to the landing board at the front. And I, I kind of thought they'd adjust and they'd start using the landing board more readily, but they seem to like coming through that back upper area. And it's interesting because basically what this means is that there is a lot more activity and confusion of the hive when I start taking boxes off to do an inspection. Now they're not aggressive. It it feels weird because I'm surrounded by bees, but they actually land on me. They start grooming themselves. If I've like got a little bit of honey or propolis on me, they start licking it. They're very relaxed. They just seem confused because where they thought that top entrance is, it's now not there. So oh, I don't know what's going on there. Should I turn the hive? I don't know. So this is something that I'm going to reach out to people more experienced and ask them about. Um, I noted some drones. I noted drone comb being pulled, but not enough that I felt confident that I could start pulling frames for nukes because I'm basically using my own hives as an indicator of drone production for the area. And I want there to be a lot of drones so that any virgin queen, when she goes to mate, there will be a lot of options for her. Now, actually, um, this morning I was able to run out and get some stuff done in the hives. And I won't go into a huge amount of detail. I'll save it for my next episode. But I was able to see the queen this time. And I was also able to note that... Um, there was quite a sharp increase in drones today and that they've started backfilling, which is basically when as soon as a, a little newbie hatches, they immediately fill that cell with pollen or honey. And this can, if you don't kind of catch this and mitigate it, then it can lead to swarming. So I really need to kind of look at the weather and decide when I want to pull nukes. Uh, or frames for nukes I feel like now would be a good time to start planning that I could pull this week I could pull over the weekend I could pull next week I think this is a good time so now hive number two queen marker <laughs> they were not at all aggressive when I went in I found eggs brood in the queen um the brood in this hive is just I mean it's beautiful I mean she is just she you know she had laying issues what I thought were laying issues last year but she is a freaking champ this year I'm so impressed I love seeing these deep frames just full of beautifully positioned brood it's absolutely incredible um she was in the upper box so she's moving up uh this has a lot of built out frames but the what uh, I put in a couple of frames that do need wax on it and they have started to build and I um, actually added a deep box during this inspection with two drawn frames to encourage them to start filling the other frames. On this hive, I use a mason jar feeder. Um, it's like a mason jar with the lid has little holes in it. You turn it upside down and they can drink from it. And again, 
that goes on the inner cover, an empty super goes on top, and then the outer cover. This hive also had like two queen cups, and I broke those down after confirming cell, um, <laughs> cells. There's always cells after confirming eggs. And then hive number three, which is my Saskatraz queen, uh, I found eggs and brood during this inspection. I did not see the queen, but there were lots of eggs and some of the eggs were still standing upright. So she was definitely there. And for this uh, hive, I was using a new feeder. It's another kind of gravity feeder, but this one is a bucket and it has a little circle in the middle of the lid of fine mesh and you turn it upside down and the idea is that it will slowly dispense uh, nectar or sugar water as they come up and they lick the, uh, the mesh, but it actually leaked a little bit. So I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I probably won't buy this feeder again. It's very inexpensive and you can buy ginormous ones uh, that hold a huge amount of sugar syrup. I'm not really at that point. I might never be. So yeah, I'm probably not gonna buy another one. This hive has a lot of frames that I put in there from my dead colony. So they have a lot of wax to work with, but I did put some foundation um, only frames in there and they have started drawing new wax. And I shared a picture on my website that I would recommend you looking at. It is a frame of freshly drawn wax. So it's that beautiful, creamy, pale color that they have packed, well, the queen has packed full of brood and it's just beautiful. And because they've started their wax production and they're actually doing a pretty good job, I added a honey super or also like, you could also call it a medium for them to start drawing the wax on so they could start building it out because I am hoping that we're going to go into a nectar flow soon but if we go into a nectar flow and they have no drawn comb to work with I'm just going to see more of this kind of backfilling behavior so I'm hoping that they'll start drawing some more wax for me. From the minute this hive got established, they've been making quite a lot of queen cells and I've just been breaking them down after confirming eggs. They're still doing it. But the brood pattern is great. The population is wonderful. Um, these are her bees now, or at least um, some of them are. So she, we've reached a point where the eggs that she first laid have hatched and I haven't noticed them becoming more aggressive. So that was something that I heard after I ordered my Saskatraz hybrid queen. Um, so far, this is actually quite a docile colony. And um, again, I went out this morning and I actually did find the queen this time. She looks great. She's doing a wonderful job. They're still pulling wax. Um, I did a mic check and I'll talk about the mic check on my next episode. So things that I need to do is... Um, I still have an unassembled nucleus colony to build. I still have unassembled deep supers that need to be built and painted. And I definitely need to make more syrup because when I went out this morning, uh, most of them have consumed 50% um, to uh, 75% of what I put out before. So I need to get cracking and get them some more sugar syrup. Okay, so next up, because this actually ended up being much longer than I um, anticipated. I got a little excited and um, blathered on. But um, yeah, so next up I wanna talk about setting up a chicken hospital. So if you follow my Instagram, you will have been seeing that my very oldest hen, Agatha, was sick this uh, 
spring again. So she is the hen who was also sick last spring and I had to medicate. And I really thought that this was it. I thought that she'd reached a point of no return. And basically what happened is I went out on the 9th and she was acting weird. She was huddled down, she was leaning to one side and she was holding her head at a weird angle. So I took her out of the run and I put some treats down for her and she ended up circling the treats in this weird staggering gait as if she couldn't stop. So I was quite alarmed and I brought her into the house so that I could monitor her and give her some treatment. And whenever I bring a chicken into the house and I get them set up, I say that I've created a chicken hospital. So what is a chicken hospital? Basically, it's any safe, secure space inside a temperature controlled area, be that your house, a heated or cooled outbuilding or garage, etc. And in my case, it's my downstairs bathroom. Now, when you're choosing an area to set up care for your chicken, these are some things that I would suggest you consider. Can you control the temperature to avoid overheating or excessive cold? Is there a source of light? A window is best in my opinion, but artificial light is fine because remember, chickens rely on daylight hours to produce eggs and it affects like how and when they produce eggs. Is it away from drafts or chills? Is the area away from other animals to prevent either predation on your sickly hen, but also accidents and also to protect healthy animals from any kind of potential contagion? Is it convenient for you? You're likely going to be in that area quite a lot, feeding, watering, uh, medicating and monitoring your sick chicken. So don't overlook how important it is that it be a space that you can conveniently access and that you're not going to get frustrated with. And then again, things like, is the area calm? Is it quiet? Loud sounds, including those from other animals and children, can be stressful to a sick animal and can actually impede their recovery. Stress is bad for humans as well, but in things like birds and reptiles, stress can actually be deadly surprisingly quickly. So the reason I chose my downstairs bathroom is it's one of the few rooms in our house that doesn't contain any other pets, which in our case is basically reptiles. I have reptile cages all through my house. The only rooms that don't have reptiles in are my downstairs bathroom, the guest bedroom, and actually the master bedroom. And I don't really want to put a sick animal in bedrooms and they're upstairs. Um, Upstairs gets kind of hotter than the rest of our house. So the downstairs bathroom is the most convenient location. It's also an area where I can keep my dogs out of it because they have very high prey drives and I'm sure they would love some fresh chicken. And then I also have this raised counter space in there where I can put the crate. So it keeps it away from the floor vents that, you know, for air conditioning or for heating. And um, again, I can control the heat in there because it's connected to the master system. And there's also a nice window so I can open up the blinds and she can have natural daylight and there's overhead lights as well. Now, in terms of is it quiet, we're a very quiet household. I'm an introvert. I find loud places um, very draining and we also have no children. So it's quiet here my dogs rarely bark and if they do they are outside and we don't do things like play loud music all day or listen to movies with the volume up really really high 
I actually hate that. It, I find it really grating. And so when I close off the door to that room, it's even more peaceful than our sort of regular living space. Now, how should you cage your sick chicken? You could let your chicken loose in your chosen area if you feel comfortable with the fact that the floor is going to get very messy and there are potential safety issues. If the door opens inwards, for instance, you would need to be careful that you don't accidentally hit your chicken. Um, Or if the door opens out, you want to be careful of escapes. And then also things like, is your chicken... um, able to have that kind of space or are they falling over should they be in a smaller area so that they don't accidentally hurt themselves so for me what I like to do is I can find them and I use a medium metal wire dog crate with a pull-out plastic tray which makes cleanup really convenient and I would recommend using this kind of system or perhaps um, if your chick brooder has relatively high sides that would also be a good option Or you could use an X-Pen on plastic sheeting because, again, that's easy to clean and a sick chicken is unlikely to try and fly out of an X-Pen. So when you're looking at types of containment, these are the things I would recommend considering. Is there enough space for the chicken to move around? You don't want to confine them to such a small area that they can't, you know, move away from their own waist, move towards food, stretch their little legs a little bit, flap their little wings, things like that. Again, if the chicken has mobility issues, is there enough room for them to move safely, but not so much room that they could fall over, get themselves stuck somewhere, get in some kind of you know, terrible situation when you're not there to witness it? Is it convenient to clean up? Chickens poop a lot and they are messy and it smells. They're also dusty. Is it a convenient space that you can clean? Can you put food and water without the chicken knocking it everywhere? Is it easily accessible to you? Don't put it up too high. Don't put it on the floor if it's hard for you to bend over, etc. And then can you easily remove the chicken from the enclosure? Because chances are you're going to be medicating and at the very least you'll be doing regular body checks to note things like weight loss or infestations of mites or lice or if they have a wound that you're treating and so on. Um, It can be really hard to get chickens out of some enclosures. So that's something to consider. Now, when I set up my dog crate, what I like to do is the plastic pan is in and I will then put uh, linings of just newspaper down. I get a shallow pan like a kitty litter tray um, and I fill that with the shavings that I would use in their coop. And this is like their little nesting area. Um, They can poop in there and it's easy to spot clean. Um, I just, you know, get my... um, Uh, little bags put them over my hand I could just pick up you know whatever kind of poop there is in there and there's room for this nesting area on one side and then food and water on the other side and it's not far enough away that it's hard for the chicken to get to but it is just far enough away that the chicken's not going to spill the water everywhere every day I also like to drape a towel or a sheet over the back of the crate to cover that nesting area a little bit this makes the chicken feel a little safer because they feel like they're enclosed inside a coop And then for cleanup, I keep plastic bags nearby as well as disposable gloves and then any kind of topical medication that doesn't require being refrigerated. So dusting powder, Vaseline, a wound treatment spray, etc. I keep those nearby so I can just grab them when I need to. Other items that I found to be useful to have on hand 
are things like a pill crusher. So many oral medications won't be eaten by your chicken. If you just put a pill in front of them, it's a rare chicken that will eat that pill. And so usually what I do is I crush the pill and then I mix it with something tasty. Then I use a needleless syringe, suck that stuff up, and then I can just give them a little drop at a time and make sure that they get as much of the meds into them as possible. So needleless syringes, that's another thing I recommend keeping on hand ideally in different sizes if you can get them because not only are they good for giving medications they're also good for giving like pedialyte if the chicken's dehydrated water if the chicken isn't drinking on its own and um, maybe even like a sugar syrup if you think low blood sugar is an issue and so on I also have a dedicated jar that I use for mixing up medications I don't want to use something that I might contaminate or that might cause contamination of other animals or people in the house so usually what I use is like a little baby food jar that I can put the powder in and do all the mixings I also recommend keeping a notebook on hand you can log treatments you can log when you saw symptoms how symptoms are progressing what weight the bird is if you are able to weigh the bird how their behavior is are they bright-eyed have they become stronger did you change something about how you're keeping them having that notebook is so useful, particularly when you look back. So if you get another sick hen, you can look back at previous treatments and you can see what worked and what didn't and also get a feel for what to expect. I'd also recommend having the phone number and the location of an avian or exotic vet on hand as well as your nearest emergency vet. So you don't have to go looking for them when you need them, they're already there ready for you to access. It's also useful to have an additional heat source, whether this is a space heater, a panel heater, or even just hot water bottles. If your hen is sick during winter, or if you lose heat for any reason during a cold period of time, you might need these things. And again, this is kind of optional, but I like having somewhere to sit. So what's actually convenient about my bathroom is that I sit on the closed toilet using it as a seat when I'm like holding my chicken to administer medication and it's really useful because standing and trying to hold a chicken can be a little awkward and particularly if you have to administer something drop by drop it can be time consuming and so it's nice to be able to be comfortable and you're not worrying about how you feel when you're focusing on your chicken. Also sometimes it helps to wrap a chicken and hold them kind of more upright or even like towards their back and that's very difficult to do standing. It's much easier if you can use your lap to place them in. I also always have old towels like scrap cloths things like that on hand that I can use for wrapping the chicken, cleaning up after them and so on. Um, I actually have a big bag of those things and I just move them into the downstairs bathroom when I've set up my chicken hospital. As I've mentioned previously, if you can get a copy of the Chicken Health Handbook, this is a wonderful book. You can look up symptoms, look up treatments, look up what to expect. It's just so helpful. And then finally, have old clothing that you don't mind getting messy. So what I do is I actually have a chicken shirt and a chicken jacket that I use exclusively for going out to the coop, doing cleanup, or when handling chickens for any reason. And this is because chickens are gross little creatures who will step in their poo and they are not afraid to get it all over you. And a sick chicken might not be able to groom themselves. They might have diarrhea. They are, you know, dripping nasty things. And it's amazing how much that can get on you. So having old clothing that you don't care that much about so that if it's 
gets to a point where it's beyond cleaning, you can just throw it away. Now, hopefully this gives you kind of a general idea of where to start when you're setting up a space for a sick chicken. Now, as for Agatha, um, I have to say that old bird is tough as nails. When I found her, I really thought that, um, that her time was up. Uh, usually when I found chickens in that kind of condition, they've died within 48 hours or I've had to have them euthanized. And I was leaning towards euthanasia based on how Agatha was behaving. So basically what happened is I bring her in, I check her over and I, the first thing I noticed is that she'd obviously been feeling bad for a while and had just been hiding it well because she was absolutely infested with poultry lice. It's actually the worst infestation I've ever seen. And my special needs girl, Babette, who was the first chicken I ever had, she had a cut beak and couldn't groom herself, but I never saw her infested like this. And Agatha is actually usually very, very clean. She's usually perfectly capable of grooming herself. So she must have been feeling ropey for quite some time. So the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to get rid of these lice to make her comfortable, but I needed some kind of gentle method because she was so weak and I was concerned that if I used a strong insecticide or chemical-based insecticide that it could harm her. So first things first, because she was so weak, I mixed up a solution of Nutridench, which Nutridrench, sorry, which is a... Um, it's a liquid supplement with various minerals and vitamins and such that you can either put in water or give directly to your birds. And I always have it on hand. I then diluted it with a little bit of water in case she was dehydrated. And I added a little bit of local honey for sugar because her crop didn't feel very full. So I was worried that she wasn't eating well and therefore might be hypoglycemic. So I syringe fed her this carefully and then I put her in her crate with her regular chicken crumble and some diced up boiled egg. And this first day she ate sparingly, but she did seem to enjoy the egg yolk. So the next day she looked a little stronger. She ate a whole boiled egg. She ate some chopped greens and I gave her the same solution that I'd given her the day before. And because she was a little brighter and a little stronger, I decided that the first thing I try for the lice is... Um, a solution of water and Castile soap that I put into a spray bottle and I basically thoroughly spritzed her focusing on her vent and under her wings where the majority of the mites were and I carefully rubbed this into her skin into her feathers and as I did so I cleared away debris so when lice are on your chickens at the base of their feathers um, is where they lay their eggs and these can be quite large and they can attract a lot of dirt so basically she had these big clumps of lice eggs that were covered then in clumps of dirt and mud and I was trying to carefully remove this debris as best I could because it was causing her feathers to stick together which was pulling at her skin and it was very uncomfortable and my hope was that this process of kind of spritzing and massaging her skin was going to be less stressful than giving her a proper bath. I also took out the old pain pills that I had on hand for her for when she was being medicated last year and I started giving her a daily dose again. Now as she became a little stronger um, I noticed that I wasn't making a big progress with the lice and so I decided that I could risk doing some stronger methods of treatment. So basically what I did is I took diatomaceous earth 
as the majority of powder. And then to it, I added a little bit of poultry dust. And the main ingredient in this is permethrin, which is a very potent insecticide that I don't like to use because it kills basically every insect. I don't even like to have it because of the honeybees, but sometimes you need it. So I basically sat Aggie down and I just started dusting her all over with this, making sure that I didn't get close to her eyes or her nostrils. And I wore a face mask while I did this. It's very important if you're using diatomaceous earth or any kind of dusting powder, particularly one with an insecticide in it, that you use proper equipment. So wear a face mask and wear goggles or glasses. And when I did this treatment, the lice just started falling off her. It was shocking how many there were. And then I gave her some treats to apologize because she didn't like it. And within 48 hours, she was doing even better. She was looking stronger. She was eating a lot more. And so I decided now was the time that I could give her a bath. And the reason I wanted to bathe her is that those egg sacs are so sticky. They're like glue. And I was just not having a lot of success removing them without hurting her. But if I could get her in a bath, I could carefully work on it and loosen them up. So it took about an hour all told of just working carefully to remove as many of those eggs as I could. And then after drying her using the low setting on my hairdryer, I applied Vaseline to any remaining eggs that I found. This should smother them and prevent them from hatching. And then when she was 100% dry, I also gave her another light dusting. And after this, she was free of adult lice but some of the eggs were still viable. So I started getting into the habit of giving her a very light dusting after her daily medication, just to make sure that as new lice were hatching, they were being killed. So by May 15th, it was clear that not only was Agatha going to make it, but she actually had a real shot at full recovery. So I decided that I would take her to my avian vet and we could discuss her pain management and whether she needed any other kind of treatment like antibiotics. And I wasn't able to go in with her because of COVID-19 precautions. So they were doing the thing where the vet techs come out in full PPE, grab your pet, go in, the vet calls you, discusses issues with you, and then they bring your your pet out when everything's done. But I wasn't worried because uh, all the vet techs there absolutely adore my chickens, which is wonderful. And I've seen this particular vet before and I trust him, I trust his judgment. So when he called me to discuss like what he was seeing, um, he gave me a couple of options. So the first one was um, we could either do a full blood panel, which would look at everything, blood counts, uh, kidney liver, kidney function, liver function, all these kind of things. Or we could just do a simple CBC. And, you know, I wanted to do the full blood panel, but when I asked him about the estimate, it was extremely expensive. It was almost $200. And I basically said to him, you know, I don't want to sound cold, but she's very, very old. And she has a a, a, a history of poor health. And so I wasn't, I wasn't going to invest hundreds of dollars into her treatment. So instead we did the CBC And it showed that she did have an elevated white blood cell count, which means she had some kind of infection. And so I was given two weeks of antibiotics for her and also advised that for seven to 10 days, I should double up her pain meds. So instead of a once daily dosage, it would be twice daily. Now, as for the cause of her recent illness, um, it's very similar to what we saw last year, which is when 
we had x-rays done and we found out that she had arthritis all through her body a deformed toe that's actually missing bone from a previous infection and a mass on it was either her liver or her spleen but I can I can never remember which one and so any of those things could have been a contributing factor but my vet suggested that hormones might play a role so she had been doing so well um, in the fall and the winter and fighting me so hard whenever I tried to medicate her that I very, very slowly weaned her off the pain meds and she was fine, absolutely fine. Now in fall and winter, a chicken's reproductive system starts to shut down and then eventually some chickens don't lay any eggs over winter. But then in spring, everything starts to like ramp back up again with the increased daylight and they'll start producing eggs again. So my vet said, based on what I had seen, he wondered if as spring came and her reproductive system started to work again, that it became inflamed, leading to an infection. And I can't believe I didn't think of this because it makes perfect sense considering the biology of chickens. And also she had shocked the heck out of me by laying an egg for the first time in like nine, 10 months, right before I noticed how sick she looked. So knowing kind of what we might be expecting in the future this was good to know and within 24 hours after that first dose of antibiotics she was so much brighter she was steadier that body tilt and head tilt that had already gone um she wasn't leaning dramatically anymore she started talking a lot more so when I went in the bathroom to feed her and check on her and medicate her she's like you know really just chatty she started fighting me a little bit when I was trying to give her her medication and after a few days on antibiotics she even laid another egg and I posted a picture of it on my website and just as a quick aside always be mindful of the fact that when you're medicating chickens sometimes the medication means that the eggs aren't safe for consumption so always check the medication guidelines and or talk to your vet about it so in the case of Agatha we can't consume her eggs when she's being medicated on either pain medication or antibiotics. So this egg was disposed of. So she just goes from strength to strength. And on the 24th, the weather was beautiful. And I decided I'd put Agatha back outside. Now, whenever you take a chicken away from a flock, the whole pecking order gets reset. And when you put them back, it's going to have to be dealt with again. So I thought it was adorable because I put her back and she went right up to the Cleveland hens because remember she only lives with the two other special needs hens and she pecked them right on the head to be like I'm in charge now which is weird because Aggie is timid to the point of being ridiculously nervous but the girls tried it back the girls accepted it for like 10 minutes and then were like "Eh, no I'm gonna tell you off and sure enough Aggie's now back on the bottom of the pecking order but the good news is I don't really have to do anything special when I reintroduce her because one of the Cleveland girls doesn't have a beak so she can't cause any damage and the one that does have the majority of her beak she's just not aggressive she doesn't grab onto comb she doesn't jump on top of other hens she will peck them to tell them who's boss but she doesn't go after them like I see in my big flock where things get really violent sometimes and there's blood and it's really hard to reintroduce chickens so she's out there now she's happy I'm out there twice a day medicating her 
she's just going from strength to strength. I'm delighted. That first night that she was out, I went out in the dark to make sure that she'd gone into the coop and also that she was accepted in the coop. And sure enough, even though the Cleveland girls were huddled together, Aggie was in there and she was even on the roosting bar. And this is a big deal because of the issue she has with pain in her feet. She doesn't usually roost. So the fact that she felt well enough to actually be up on the bar was a really, really good sign. And I was delighted. And I also know now that if this whole issue was connected to her hormones, that if she does make it through another winter, that I should start with the pain medication as we go back into spring. And one kind of final note about everything that I went through with Agatha is spending so much time up close and personal with her really made me appreciate all over again how beautiful chickens are. So I feel like most of us think about chickens as being kind of cute, fluffy, sometimes silly with their funny little waddles when they run. But, you know, bathing her, drying her, dusting her. At one point, I was spreading her wings out um, to just double check every like little nook and cranny for lice. And they're beautiful. Her feathers are gorgeous. The way they're formed, the softness of her like downy under coat of feathers, the water resistant nature of the top feathers, just the tiny little delicate feathers around the eyes and on the head. Chickens are actually an incredibly beautiful bird. And I realized that I'm not sure we give them enough credit. So for those of you who maybe aren't as up close and personal with your chickens if you have that one particular hen who doesn't mind being handled doesn't mind being picked up being cuddled maybe spend some time one day and just really look at them like look at how beautifully their feathers are formed how their whole body is designed for what we've bred them to do for giving us like bountiful eggs and just kind of appreciate them anew because I I do I really feel like like I do So that's it for today. Um, I hope it wasn't too navel-gazy or all over the place or rambling. Um, I hope everyone out there listening is doing really well. I think even those of us who've had these very long winters are now seeing a change in weather. And so things are probably getting busy for us all in terms of our hives. So I hope things are going well. Um, If you want to, you know, reach out to me, follow along with me, send me a message or let me know how you're getting along. You can find me on all the social medias, but I'm most active on Instagram. Once again, I will post uh, links to those podcasts I mentioned in the episode summary, as well as a link to my website. So you can look at photos of Agatha, how I set up my chicken hospital, you know, what that looks like. You can see photos of Luna, my whippet, and some pictures of the hives and what's going on. Um, I have a picture which kind of shows you where the feed it is on a hive in relation to the brood boxes so that might be useful for some of you so definitely you know go to the episode summary and check those out I know a lot of places are starting to open up now um, but for some of us we are still being especially cautious I hope that you and yours are staying safe staying healthy and for those of you who are going back to work I hope that's a good thing for you that it's positive for you to get back out there and that it doesn't end up causing any health issues for you or any extra challenges because we're all just doing we're all just doing the best we can right 
So everyone out there listening, thank you again for listening. Thank you for sticking with me. I recently hit just over 1500 downloads and that means a huge amount to me. And um, some of you have tagged me in various social medias or contacted me to let me know that you're enjoying things, you're enjoying the podcast or that something was particularly helpful. And it honestly means the world to me. I'm so touched to hear from you. It, It kind of amazes me that I have been helpful because this is really about just sharing, you know, my journey and hoping that what I'm sharing with you as I learn things is also beneficial. So when you say, yes, I actually did learn something from you, that makes me tremendously happy. So thank you so much. And I will talk to you in two weeks. And hopefully by then I will have got my act together. I will have the next two chapters to review of Thomas Seeley's The Lives of Bees. And uh, I'm looking forward to finding what else he has to say and what else he learnt when he went out and looked at wild hives to learn from them. So my friends, stay safe, stay healthy if you can, stay self-isolated. And as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Cheers.